Man, it was, it was super powerful for me uh, to listen to this recording. That's available on our website now. And what I'm challenging us to do is spend some time in Romans 8 and try to memorize the chapter. Um, now, the crazy thing is I'm associating those verses with the people that read them. Um, and it's really amazing to me to think about what does Romans 8 you know, mean to you as a person? Um, um, Gary and I talked this last week, and it meant the world to me to hear how he internalizes the book. This is my life that I'm talking about. This is me. Um, I want to give you just a little bit of background and, and just kind of talk about what's going on when we get to Romans 8, the, where the church is at. I won't take long to do this, but I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you leave the country or you go to a different culture, and, and things just are not what you expected them to be. It's just different, and you judge the situation. Uh, you know, you, a lot of you know I'm a major critic of barbecue. Um, there is no way I'm going to eat barbecue and not criticize it, uh, and, including my own, because I love it so much, right? Um, when I was younger, when I was living in Ecuador, I remember a restaurant. We had no American restaurants there, uh, but I remember an, a, rest, an, a restaurant opened across the street from my house almost, just a block away, and it was called something like what we have here in Colorado, like Serious Texas Barbecue. And I freaked out. I was like, a serious Texas barbecue is opening in Ecuador. And I was pumped, and I waited while they constructed this building. I waited for months. Finally, I was their first customer. They took my picture and everything. Went in there with my friends, uh, sat down, and I'm just excited for barbecue. And they gave me meatloaf. <laughs> and they called it brisket. And they had Chilean flags hanging all over the walls, and they thought it was the Texas flag. And they were playing, I don't know what kind of music they were playing, it wasn't country music, and they gave me ketchup instead of barbecue sauce, and I freaked. I, I just, I pulled the guy over, I said, man, I gotta be kind to you, but man, that's not brisket. Uh, it's not bad brisket. It's not brisket, you know, and I just went off and I said, this is not what it's supposed to look like. Well, the reason I tell you that story is because this is the situation that's happening back in Rome. In AD 49, Emperor Claudius expelled all Jews from Rome. No Jews there. Now you have church being developed in Rome, purely Gentile. These guys are living in Rome. The gospel somehow made it to Rome by Gentiles, and they are going to construct the way church is supposed to look without any help from the outside. Now, some of you have done that. You visited a country where you can tell it was an American church plant, right? The language might be different, but... Everything else feels familiar. The same crying during the communion, the same, you know, coughs during the communion, the same order of worship, the same joke at the beginning. It's, it's, this is what I grew up with. I feel it. But maybe you've been to a church where you said, what are you guys doing? Man, this doesn't look like church. I was at a church service one time and everybody had Bibles open. They were praying. They were hanging out. And I asked a guy one time, and I'll never forget, that, I asked him, um, when, do, when does church start? And, and he said, he looked at me confused, and he says, does, does church start? And, and I said, well, yeah, like services. And he goes, no, we're, we're here to pray together and meet together, and we'll, we'll take communion in a minute. But, I mean, it didn't look the way church was supposed to look. It felt so unfamiliar. Now, imagine these Jews, A.D. 54. They return to Rome. 
Okay, this is just three years about before the book of Romans is written. They return to Rome, and here's what we know about the situation in Rome. The book opens up with this. In Romans 1.8, he says this, Your faith is being proclaimed all over the world. They have that kind of faith in this church. That The whole world is looking at this and going, look at what's happening in Rome, what the church is doing, what God's doing by His Spirit. And the Jews are coming back, and they said, this is meatloaf. What are you doing? This isn't the way church goes. I'm uncomfortable with Gentiles even coming to church. But now you're leading church? This isn't the way synagogue goes. This isn't the way worship goes. This isn't the way it's supposed to look. And Paul addresses these Jews and he says this, What makes you a Jew? And the opening seven chapters of Romans are about these subjects. The law circumcision, Abraham. This is what makes you a Jew, right? And so he goes these, systematically he goes through these, and he says this, I'm just going to read to you just a few verses to build this up to chapter 8. In Romans 2.28, he says this, think about how controversial these words would have been. Think about this. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical, no. A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart. Then in chapter 3, he says, are we any better? Are we not all the same? We have already made this charge. Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin. In chapter 4, he does what Jesus did in John chapter 8, and he says, do you claim Abraham as your father? Is, fa- is Abraham the father of the descendants of blood? Or is Abraham the father of descendants of faith? You boast in the law, but it's the very law that condemns you. It's the very law that revealed your sin. He says, but they have shown, in chapter 2 he says this, they've shown that they are a law to themselves because the requirements of the law have been written on their hearts. And someone's asked me, a lot of times when I've taught Romans before, some of you are going to be familiar with this phrase, it sounds like you're teaching replacement theology. Israel is now spiritual Israel. The Jews who were Jews outwardly are now Jews inwardly. The temple is now the temple of the body. Circumcision is circumcision of the heart. I'm like, well, yes, it's replacement. No, it's fulfillment theology. That all of those things have been now fulfilled in them. And it's something new God is doing. And that's what Paul is trying to expose to them. But he fleshes it out in chapter 7 in himself. And that is ultimately what I'm going to pray. I do and every single one of us does. Because this is more than a history of Jew and Gentile. And like we were talking in class this morning, more than simply how that might look and how that might apply today, more than anything else... It's chapter 7, internalizing it. Say, what does this mean to me? So Paul puts his own life out there. He just puts himself out there and he says, this is what it means to me. I was a Jew. Well, I am a Jew, right? I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. You know, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. These are. This is Paul. And he says this in Romans 7. Wretched men that I am. I'm wretched. This, think about this. The man who writes these words stood and gave approval, the text says, as Stephen is stoned. 
Stephen himself, he gave approval and he stood there and watched a man of God die. And he was the one guilty for this. This is Saul. And he's the one writing this book. And he says this, I'm wretched. I'm sick. I'm desperate. And the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, by nature, that's what I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will, who will let me, how can I be delivered from this, this sickness? And he says, praise be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. If there's one verse I want you to memorize outside of, out of Romans chapter 8, a key verse leading up to this is Romans 6, 13. And this is a verse I want to live my life by. It says this, Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. I think this is a major theme of this book. I want you to recognize in yourself, I have been brought from death to life. How does that affect who I am and how I treat people and how I worship my God? This is, this is where he's coming from. I thought about all of the people that experienced in the Old Testament and in the New what Paul feels right here. Adam knew it. Jacob knew it. Moses knew it. Job. David. Isaiah. Jeremiah. Jonah. Peter. Paul. And John, those were the names I could come up with in my mind. What do all of those names have in common? All of those stood before God, guilt exposed, and basically said what he said, wretched man that I am. Isaiah says this, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, I've seen the glory of God, right? I, I see my sin in light of God's glory right now. And all of these men experienced that. Job says this, my ears heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This idea of, of standing before God and feeling the weight of sin and the weight of condemnation, I think is dark, but it's something that it's important for every one of us to experience, to experience the victory that Romans 8 wants to, us to, uh, to bring us into. Blaise Pascal, um, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, but he's famous for Pascal's wager. And, and it's, it's the idea, I would say Pascal's wager is the idea that um, uh, you bet on the existence of God with your life. But he was a famous mathematician. He, he had already come up with um, a type of an invention of a calculator before he was 19 years old. He was a prodigy. He was a genius. He died at 39. But I want to share with you something he wrote that meant a lot to me. This is, this is what Blaise Pascal wrote. We desire truth and find in ourselves nothing but uncertainty. We seek happiness and find only wretchedness and death. We are incapable of not desiring truth and happiness and incapable of either certainty or happiness. Man must desire the truth in order to seek it. Without an inner hunger for truth, no amount of logic or argument will suffice. Truth is so obscured nowadays and lies so well established that unless we love the truth, 
we shall never recognize it. Not only do we only know God through Jesus Christ, we only know ourselves through Jesus Christ. We only know life and death through Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, we cannot know the meaning of our life or of our death or of God or of ourselves. Man, when he wrote that, I said, this is it. I stand before God and I, it's not just that I don't understand God. I don't understand life. I don't understand its nature. I don't understand its purpose. And in Christ, all of that is revealed. And that's the victory that Paul feels when he writes these words. Coming out of that, he says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Did you know the word Christian is only found three times in the entire Bible? But this phrase, in Christ, is found, um, I think it's in the neighborhood of 150 times or more. This is how they saw themselves in Christ. I am someone either in Christ or out of Christ. This is who I am. And he says this, but if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. I thought about what that, that means to me. Um, throughout my life as a Christian today, and I'm 2,000 years removed and on the other side of the planet from the people in Rome. But at the same time, I look at it and think, from the time that I really gave my life to Christ to today, how many voices have been in my head saying, you don't really belong to him? How many people have I encountered that said, you don't belong to him because? And they would give me lists. Your church doesn't practice this. You don't do this. You haven't done this. There's so many things that have happened in the world that have tried to distance me from my Lord. Worse than that, so many things in my mind have done that. Because whenever I worship just like you, my sin is ever before me, right? And I've said that to people before when they come to me and they say, well, Jeff, this is what I see you and these are the wrong. I'm thinking, you don't know half the wrong about me. You don't even know the wrong that's about me. I stand before God as a sinner. And I loved it that Gary pointed out in class this morning. He says that. Paul says that about himself in the present tense. And that's Paul who gave his life for this. And I stand before God as a sinner. And we worship God. And I think about all of the things that have stood between me and God. And all of the battles I've had in my mind. At the end of the day, God, am I yours or am I not yours? And Paul comes in with this liberating chapter of Romans 8 that we're going to spend quite a while wrestling with. It's going to be beautiful. But the power of those words personally to you, there is therefore now no condemnation. Not any voice from the outside. Not any voice from Satan. Not even any voice from within in you. Paul says this, I care very little if I am judged by you. Or any human agency. I don't even judge myself. God is my judge. God is the one who will, who will judge me. And I love, I love the message that he's trying to give the church and trying to give us today through this. Here's some phrases I want, I want to familiarize you with in the book of Romans that'll kind of, 
uh, set the stage for this. The four most important phrases in the book of Romans I wrote down, at least in my opinion, are these. The first one is this, how much more? He keeps saying that, especially in chapter 5, how much more? And we're going to talk a bit more about what that means. The big word in the book of Romans is also. Um, we're going to talk a lot more about what that means because also is a huge word in Romans chapter 8. To the Jew first and also for the Gentile. This is what's happened now also for you. And so that's going to be a major theme of the book as well. Um, but most importantly, a righteousness that is from God that has been revealed to every single one of us. A righteousness that is not my own. One that I've been clothed with from Christ. That when I stand before him, I don't stand before him with my works. I don't stand before him with a life that I will ever boast in. But I've been clothed with the righteousness that is from Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, we talked about that quite a bit in our study in 2 Corinthians. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What I ultimately pray that this book will do for us, um, before I kind of finish out this theme, is I pray that it will bring us back to our knees continually in humility. Um, this is something that I've emphasized a lot, and I pray that I will emulate in my own life, that when we come to church and you're surrounded by people that are very different from you, and we come from very different backgrounds, and especially here in Colorado, man, how many different places do we come from? How many different types of churches do we come from? And we come together and we say, that's not the way we did church in Dallas, is it? That's not the way I remember growing up with church in Leander. That's not the way it was in the type of church I went to. Things are different, right? People act differently. People are from wealthy backgrounds and and we have the homeless meeting at the same time. And here's what Paul is going to say. You are both alike under sin. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're from the wealth, the wealthy or, the, or from the poor, we are all alike under sin. And Paul puts himself in front of everybody and he says this, man, I was right where you were. I know that pride. I know what it is to exalt myself. I know that well. And he says this, I'm a wretched man and I'm in desperate need of God's grace. In desperate need of it. And when I come to church and I worship God with fellow and, and, and here they are meeting with Gentiles that they were trained to think were a lesser people. And Gentiles, how about this? We're also trained to think that Jews were lesser people. True. And now they've got to come together and say, before God, these are my brothers and sisters. Guess what? This is not new to the New Testament. Do you know that this is what God said in the Old Testament as well? I'm going to read this to you. This is what he says in um, Deuteronomy chapter 23. Don't abhor the Edomite. He is your brother. Don't abhor an Egyptian because you lived as an alien in his country. The third generation that are born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. And he says this, and that's the Old Testament version of it. This is what it says in the New Testament, Ephesians 2. You were talking to Gentiles here. How about this? You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel. What does that mean? If they were excluded from citizenship in Israel, what is he saying now? 
that the Gentiles are also now Israel. And foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. The Gentile was there. The Jew also was there. And he says, but now in Christ, the two have become one. And you together alike stand condemned. But more importantly, you stand being brought out of that condemnation into life, into grace in Christ Jesus. Romans goes on and says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Um, a big battle you'll have in your mind, and, and I'm going to kind of pray for us as we go into this study. A battle you're going to have in your mind as you go through Romans 8 is, okay, I get it. Man, Jeff, I'm, I'm not justified by the works of the law, and I know that. But how do I know if I'm in Christ? And that's what a lot of the rest of the chapter is going to be devoted to. That's what First John is devoted to. This idea of how do I know if I am really in Christ when I stand before God? But he says this, the righteous requirement of the law. Some of your versions say it better than this. This is the ESV. Um, um, has been f- fully met in us. Fully met everything that I stand before God clean, holy, justified. I've asked this question before, and it's been a controversial question, and that really shocks me. Um, but I've asked people before, in Christ, do you believe today that you are holy? Do you believe that you are completely holy? And I'm, I'm terrified, to be honest with you, that Christians offer me really different responses to that question. Um, I've heard Christians tell me I'm called to be holy, but I'm not. I've heard people tell me I will be holy when I'm in heaven, but I'm not. And what's difficult for me is just coming from the text, the Bible repeatedly says this, you are the saints of God. And that word saint actually is the word holy. You are the holy ones of God. You have been justified. You have been cleansed. You have been forgiven. You stand before God completely cleansed of your sins and holy. Now, that's amazing to me because what that means is all of these people that I talked about, whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Job, that stood in the presence of God and said, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm in the presence of holiness. How can I stand? He says this, and Hebrews 4 is written about this. I can now with confidence boldly enter into the most holy place before his presence and celebrate that I'm his child. Do you know that the first person in the Bible that stood in front of God that I could think of that stood in front of God and didn't just hit his knees and say, I'm ruined? You know, the first person I could think of was Stephen. That he stands and immediately he sees the throne of God and he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Take me. I see you, Father. I'm coming home. That is what you see with the grace of God that he offers through Christ Jesus. And so my prayer for the church today as we go through this chapter is that you will internalize this. This would be something that means the world to you personally because two things that I want God to accomplish in me to bring me to my knees in humility and my worship to him and my attitude towards the body. And secondly that I would know with certainty that I'm his child, 
that there is no longer any condemnation. Not from the world, not from within, not from anything. That I stand before him holy and cleansed and justified. Um, They didn't have a clue how to do church in Rome. They they didn't know. They didn't know what a, a, a synagogue service was supposed to look like. That's where church services came from. They didn't have a clue about any of that. What they knew was that God had chosen them for the adoption of sons and that he loved them deeply and they gave their lives to him in worship. My prayer for the church today, when we're in the exact same situation, Paul wrote about to the Romans and he said this, because of you, the name of God has been blasphemed among the Gentiles. And I look at the world today and I think, what do they think of God because of the way we've lived our lives? And Barna surveys and so forth have said things like, the Christian life looks no different than the life in this world. Let me tell you, that is extremely wrong. That's not true at all. The professed Christian life is no different from the world. But the Christian life is radically different from this world. Uh, That's what defines the Christian life. Not works but the love of Christ and what it manifests in us. And I know that it's different. I've I've experienced that and I've witnessed that. And I pray that that's what's manifest in the church today. We're not professionals. We're not going to get church services right. And I promise you, with this many people from this many different backgrounds, we are not going to be the church you grew up with. And we're not going to be the cool church that was on the corner in Dallas. We're not going to be that professional, but I pray this. That in the spirit of humility and grace, we are God's children. And we're not going to get it right all the time. But God's spirit will be alive in this body. And alive in his people. And the world will see it in us. And I pray that's what he accomplishes in this, in this chapter. My God, I want to come before you. And I beg you, God, that you take rip pride out of our hearts. Uh, God, when there's anything, kind of wall that we would put between ourselves and others, whether it's the way we worship, the background that we come from, the way we dress, the way we talk, whatever it is, I pray that you'd bring us back to our knees and remind us that Jeff has no business even wearing the name Christ outside of your grace. And that you've brought us into this body together to walk in humility, to walk in worship, and to walk in praise. And I ask God that Romans 8 won't simply be um, won't simply be a study in your word, but it, Father, it would be something that your word takes root in us and in our attitudes, in our lives, that we would come before you and offer ourselves to you as those who have been brought from death to life, and we'd worship you with that kind of exuberance, that we'd get it, that we'd see ourselves as we are, life as it is, you as you are, and um, hope as it truly is. Um, I praise you, Father, for what you have done in hearts and every person that read and every voice that we heard. Um, I praise you for the life that brought them to this place, what you've done in them. And I ask, God, that collectively you'd hear the voice of our hearts and our spirits as we cry, Abba, Father, we desperately need you. We love you. Um, In the name of Christ, we come before you. Amen. Let's stand and worship our God together.